Amen. If you would remain standing in honor of God's word. My text comes from Luke chapter number 11. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. The scripture says, Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And so he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, the teaching on prayer didn't end there. Jesus continues in the next verse. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say, though, he will not rise and give to him because he is a friend. Yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew's Gospel says, How much more shall your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, Give good things to those who ask him. And then one more scripture, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46 says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Today we are continuing in our series, Good, Good Father, and I want to minister to you from the subject, he may be your God, but he's my father. He may be your God, but he's my father. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus. Would you minister life and would you minister vitality and strength to each one of our spirits? Would you encourage us, help us to serve you better by equipping us with your word? We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. We're in this series called Good, Good Father. And uh, the reason why we're doing this series is because life has a way of spoiling our expectation of the goodness of God. If you live long enough, you will go through some situations and circumstances and you might be tempted to be conditioned to expect only bad things to happen in your life because life can be cruel. But we've endeavored to raise our expectation of the goodness of God because what you expect in life is often what you receive. And we know that the enemy of our soul is out there and he's, he's trying to dim our eyes from seeing the goodness of God. God wants us to see his goodness more than anything else. Matter of fact, you might remember the story of Moses and God. And Moses says to God, God, I want to see you. And of all the things that God could have responded to Moses, he says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. When I thought about that, I thought, God, you could have said anything to Moses in that minute. You could have shown him any aspect of you. But the aspect of you that you chose to show him was your goodness. Why is that? And God said, because that's what I want you to see. I want you to see my goodness in your family, and I want you to see my goodness on your job and in your finances and in your health. I want you to experience my goodness, but there's an enemy out there, and the enemy comes along, and he he has two deceptions, you remember, that, that he runs on all of mankind. The first deception is to try to convince us that there is no God. 
And for those of us that are in church and watching by television or online or wherever you're watching from, we believe in God. We believe that God exists. We believe that, that God is, is the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, we believe that. But sometimes our, our, we have some doubts that creep in as to whether God is really, really as good as the Bible says that he is. And so what we've been doing is we've been combating that kind of deception that comes into all of our lives and knocks at all of our doors from time to time. Well, what the scripture says about God. A.W. Tozer said, this is so important because, listen to what he said. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. In other words, here's what he's saying, that, that our view of God and, and the way that we see God has everything, it colors everything about us, covers everything about our existence, everything about our spiritual journey, covers how we pray and what we expect and how we receive and, and all of those kind of things and our, our commitment to the things of God and whether we stay with God when life gets hard or whether we abandon God and give in to the questions that kind of bombard all of us. What we think about God is a predictor of our spiritual future in every way. And because of the importance of how we see God, we've endeavored to to talk about God's goodness in this series. And Jesus is really, really in this teaching on prayer, in essence, speaking about the goodness of God. I'm going to show you why. As Jesus was asked the question, Lord, teach us to pray by his disciples, just as John taught his disciples how to pray. I believe they were watching Jesus, and they saw something different about the, the way that Jesus prayed. They saw this, 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 this intimacy, this, this communion, this, this kind of one-on-one with God where he was connecting with God. And, and they were like, we, we want to learn how to pray like that. And so they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And the first thing he does is he gives them what we know as the Our Father. And we think that's all he taught them about prayer. But he went on, and he gave them this parable I call it the grouchy neighbor parable. The grouchy neighbor parable. Anybody have a grouchy neighbor? Anybody ever have a grouchy neighbor? Grouchy neighbor people? Right. We all have grouchy neighbors. When I was growing up, I I remember this one neighbor who was really, really, really grouchy. He was the grouchiest of them all. Matter of fact, in the neighborhood I grew up in, it was kind of, you know, a Staten Island neighborhood. Everybody knew each other. The houses were so close together on my block. We called it a block, not a road or a street. We called it a block. On my block... There was about 20 kids, and we all hung out together, and all the families knew each other, and we were always playing in the middle of the street. That's That was where we played. We didn't play like, and we'd go out right there. We'd paint bases on the street for our wiffle ball games and our stick ball games, and, and the houses were so close to the street and so close to one another that our parents would just leave the front door open, and every now and again, they'd look out, make sure we're okay. It was not uncommon to come home from school and to have one of the, the neighbors over the house having coffee with my parents. And if they weren't having coffee in the house, they were hanging out on the stoop, the front stoop. That's Staten Island for porch. But it's made out of four-by-four four cement, and so it doesn't qualify as a porch. We call it a stoop. And, and so everybody would hang out with everybody. Everybody loved one another, except for this one neighbor on the block, Mr. and Mrs. Schmidt. And Mr. and Mrs. Schmidt, they made it clear they didn't like anybody, didn't want to hang out with anybody, never showed up for block parties when we shut off fireworks. They never came out to enjoy the fireworks. They just kept to themselves. And so we as kids, we thought it was our job to annoy Mr. and Mrs. Schmidt. That was like our our little, you know kind of task that we had. And so we would play ring and run with Mr. and Mrs. Schmidt. You know, we'd ring the bell and then we'd run away and they'd come on. Or we'd ring the bell and we'd put a bag on fire on their front porch, you know, 
filled with poop so that like they'd stomp it out, have poop all over. We do all sorts of things to Mr. and Mrs. Schmidt. And, and he didn't really appreciate our humor that much. And, and so it came to a point where whenever we did stuff to Mr. and Mrs. Schmidt, he would go get his big giant German shepherd and he would chase us down the block with the big giant German shepherd. Now I'm thinking, what did he think in his mind was going to happen? Like if he caught us, was he going to allow the dog to maul us? I don't know. I mean, he never caught us. But I mean, I just remember as a kid just running for our lives because here came Mr. Schmidt and his big giant German shepherd. Well, one day when we were running away and Mr. Schmidt was following us with his big giant German shepherd, we ran past my friend Richie DeMarco's house. And Richie DeMarco's dad just happened to be outside. And he saw the guy chasing us with the big giant German shepherd. And let's just say uh, Richie DeMarco's dad had a few connections. And so he decided to teach Mr. Schmidt and the German shepherd a little lesson with a Louisville slugger. And uh, from that day forward, Mr. Schmidt and the German Shepherd never again chased us down the block ever, ever, ever. And I thought he just had a change of heart. But then I found out it's because neither him or the dog could walk. That was the neighborhood that I grew up in. Mr. Schmidt was our grouchy neighbor. And Jesus tells a little story that I can really relate to because I always remember Mr. Schmidt. And I remember how he tells this story about this other grouchy neighbor. But he wasn't grouchy because he would chase people around with German shepherds. He was grouchy because he wouldn't share his food with his neighbors. And some of you are going, are you kidding me? Is the, what's the moral equivalent of, of that? How could, you know, chasing kids with a German shepherd and not sharing your food be equally as grouchy? Well, let me explain, as Ricky Ricardo would say. In Bible times, hospitality was a, was a really big deal. It was such a big value that if you wanted to be an elder or a deacon in the church, the Bible said you had to be given to hospitality. You had to be willing to have people pop in on you and spend time with you. And you had to like people. It's amazing today. Whenever I meet ministers and pastors and uh, that don't like people, I'm like, why are you in ministry? Ministry is all about people. You're supposed to enjoy people, like hanging out with people. And that's why whenever anybody says to me, Pastor, we know you're busy, but can we... Don't, don't say that to me. Don't say we know you're busy. I know you're trying to appreciate my time and everything, but I just want you to know I enjoy people. Matter of fact, I would rather hang out with you than almost do anything else. I'd rather do that than preach. I enjoy spending time with people. And in Bible times, hospitality was something that was a really, really high value. And so um, here Jesus is telling this, this parable and this parable is a parable that everybody is supposed to understand because a parable is a story that everybody can relate to that has a spiritual meaning and and hospitality was such a big deal that in bible times they would even leave their front doors open and the reason why they would leave their front doors open is it was a signal that if if you were a traveler in bible days there weren't places to stop off on the side of the road to you know get fed you couldn't stop at mcdonald's you couldn't go to kfc you, you couldn't go to chick-fil-a you couldn't go to robex or wherever it is that you go you couldn't go to any of those places and, and you, there wasn't hotels that were just like kind of right there on the side of the road so oftentimes people would travel through villages and the villagers would leave their doors doors open as an invitation for people to come on in we'll give you a meal and we'll give you a place to stay it was like their version of airbnb except they didn't get paid for it in bible times and so uh, the, the doors would be open and jesus is telling this story and how this this one particular a guest stops in at this villager's house now in bible times if a guest came from outside of the village 
into the village and stayed in your house, you were responsible with the whole village to provide for that person in a way that would represent the village well. And so the house that this guy stops over, the guy's kind of not expecting him, and he doesn't have, he says, I don't have anything to feed him with. Now, this doesn't really mean that he didn't have any food in the house. What it means is kind of like the same as when we say we have nothing to wear. When we say we have nothing to wear, we don't mean that we're only going to places from now on, clothing optional. That's not what we mean when we say we have nothing to wear. What we, what we really mean is that, you know, it's coming off of winter here. My, my body is quite not in the shape where my summer and spring clothes look that good on me. That's what we mean when we say we have nothing to wear. And so when they say we have nothing to eat, it's not that they don't have food. It's that, that they don't have enough food or to make the village look good. So the one villager says, hold on to the guest, I'll be right back. And he goes over to the other villager's house, a neighbor's house, and he knocks on the door, and it's like in the middle of the night, and he knocks, 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 and the guy's not waking up, and so he's pounding on the door, pounding on the door, and finally the guy's like, what? He says, I need three loaves of bread. And I'm like, you're going for food, you know, to make somebody a meal, and you're asking for, for just three loaves of bread? Why just three loaves of bread? Well, if you're Italian, you understand why the whole meal starts. You build the meal around the bread. In Bible times, the bread was such a beautiful thing because it was like the fork and the knife. They ate out of bowls in Bible times, and they dipped that bread in there to get all that goodness, kind of like dipping Italian bread in Sunday gravy, nothing better in all the world. But the real reason why he's asking for bread is because he's kind of appealing to the generosity of the neighbor. He knows that if he says, can I give you bread, the neighbor understands that really that's a request to help him out with the meal. And so the neighbor's probably going to turn around and the neighbor's going to say to him, well, do you need more than bread? How about some lamb? How about some matzo ball soup? How about some pork? No, they wouldn't ask for pork in Bible times. And so everybody is expecting the neighbor to give the guy some food, to put it before the guests, to represent the villager well. Everybody knows that's the way the culture of the time happens. And then Jesus adds this grouchy neighbor twist. And he said, but the guy said no. The guy said, no, nah, it's too late. Kids are already in bed. Um, I'm, I'm just too tired. I'm not coming down. And, and, and then he ends it, and he says this. But I tell you, verse number 8 Though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he'll get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Now, this is a a unique phrase, shameless persistence, because it seems like whenever Jesus tells a parable or a teaching on prayer, he seems to talk a lot about persistence. In Luke chapter number 18, Jesus gives another story, and he begins in verse number one. He says, men ought always to pray and never to cease. And then he tells this little story, verse number two of Luke chapter 18. I'll read it for you. There was a judge in a certain city. He, he neither feared God nor cared about people. So this judge is not a good guy, right? This is so important to remember. Right, Because if we don't understand that Jesus gave an example, he's talking about prayer, and he says, we got a judge who's not a good guy. Remember that because that's important in a minute. He says, and a widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. And the judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. Can I get a good amen from the fellas? This woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice 
because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. So Jesus is teaching about prayer. And he, every time he teaches about prayer, he starts teaching about this shameless persistence. And so the question that we need to ask is, Jesus, what is your point? Why are you teaching about prayer? And why in the process of teaching about prayer are you teaching about shameless persistence? Do you mean, Jesus, that you know God is like the grouchy neighbor or the unjust judge who doesn't care about people? Do you mean, Jesus, that the way that we are supposed to get our prayers answered from God is to keep on pestering the tar out of God and annoy 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 God God until finally God gives us what we want to get us out of his hair? Is that what you mean, Jesus? Now, here's the problem. Most of us come away with that understanding of this teaching on prayer. And the reason why most of us come away with that understanding of teaching from this subject of prayer is because we have this kind of view of God that he's, he's just God. And Jesus is challenging this view of God. You'll understand what I mean in just a minute. Jesus' point is not annoy God. Matter of fact, I read this, this little story about Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was, was working to raise money for an AIDS hospice. And she had a meeting set up with Edward Bennett Williams, who at one time owned the Washington Redskins and the Baltimore Oreos, and he was a big, powerful attorney. Um, matter of fact, he was the attorney for Frank Sinatra and Richard Nixon, amongst other people. And in his biography, the author tells of this time when Mother Teresa went to him to ask him for money for the AIDS hospice, and um, he didn't really like the AIDS kind of uh, disease that much. It wasn't one of his favorite diseases to give to. And he had a, a partner by the name of Paul Dietrich. You may have heard of him. And he said to Paul, he said, you know, I, I really don't want to give to this, but I've got this little Catholic saint who, who just keeps coming to me. And so they decided amongst themselves that they were going to uh, hear her out. But after they heard her out, they were going to politely say no. And so in comes Mother Teresa, and she sits before them, and she gives them the whole spiel on why this is a good cause to give to. And they say, well, we, we recognize that and we appreciate everything you're doing, but, but we don't feel like this is something that we want to do. And so Mother Teresa said, let's pray. So she prayed, and then after they got done praying, and they, the guys bowed their head. They said amen. She gave them the same spiel word for word over and over again. And they listened again politely, and they said, we're, we're sorry, we appreciate everything you're doing, but well, we don't feel like we're going to give to this. And Mother Teresa said, well, let's pray. And finally, the guy said, all right, all right, all right, give me the checkbook. Is this what Jesus is after? You go to God, and you have a conversation with God, and you go, God, I, I, I'd like you to you know, help here, intervene here, do this, do that. And God's just like, no. And you go to God, okay, I'll pray again. And God's like, oh, still no. no. Let me pray again. And you're like, oh, okay, still no. I'm going to pray again. And finally, after a while, God's like, all right, I'm ready here. Is that what Jesus is after? No, not at all. Matter of fact, this is not a parable of comparison. This is a parable of contrast. Look at what Jesus goes on and he says here. Uh, first thing I want to teach you is Jesus is teaching God is not like a grouchy neighbor or an unjust judge. That's not like that. 
And this is, see, we have to be careful when we read everything, you know, because because you'll have people who, who think they are biblical scholars. And this story teaches that you've got to pester God. So God's an unjust judge? So God doesn't care about people? So God's a grouchy neighbor? Is that who you really think God is? Because your, your view of God colors everything about the way that you interact with God, and the way that you pray, and what your expectation was. And Jesus is saying, listen, some people in this world need to be pestered to do what is just, need to be pestered in order to give you something that you may want. But here's the thing you need to understand. He's saying, God's not like that. God, it's God's good pleasure to bless our lives, to give us good things. Luke chapter 12, verse number 32 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom is what? It represents everything God ha- has. This is my good pleasure to give you the whole thing. Psalm 35, verse 27, let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. Let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. I love this, you know, because, and I, I probably shouldn't say this because some, this might tweak some of you big time, right? Do you know that, that there are some people who, who believe that, you know, once you reach a certain level of prosperity, it's ungodly? Right, there are some people who are out there who believe that. For example, you know, and Jesse DePlans is a friend of mine. He's coming in a few weeks. Some people are like, I can't believe you're letting him come to the church. He's got too much money. Well, wait a second. My Bible says God has, takes pleasure in the prosperity of his people. Well, what does that mean? Anybody ever hear of Abraham? Anybody ever, can I see your hand if you ever heard of Abraham? Anybody know how rich Abraham was? You're the rich. Anybody ever hear of Solomon? Even richer than Abraham. Anybody ever hear of David? Right? David had a treasury, right, where he just would go into the treasury and take out millions and millions of dollars and support the kingdom of God with it. Here's my point. My point is that God wants to bless our socks off. God is not a reluctant giver. God is not somebody who's sitting here going, you know, just twist my arm a little harder and just just pray pray more and more and more and more. Wear me down and then finally, I'll give you something. That's not what the Bible teaches. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse number 11, in the message version says, God will lavish you with good things. And then Jesus ends this, or begins to, continues this teaching on prayer. Look what he finally says. He says, Luke chapter 11, verse number 9. He says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds it. To him who knocks, it will be opened. What's Jesus saying? He's saying God's not bothered. God, 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 God is not a reluctant giver and blesser of his kids. As a matter of fact, he drives the point home. Here's how he captures the whole point. Verse number 11, he says, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, just because that's what people do, right? They ask God for eggs. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Like, dad, can I have an egg? I don't know. If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Show your heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This is not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. It's God trying to show us 
Don't take what you think because of the way you interact with other people who are reluctant to give good things to us and put that on God. But notice the second thing that he teaches. He teaches God is not like your evil fathers and he's better than your best fathers. God is not like your evil fathers and he's better than your best fathers. Notice what he says. He says, if you then being evil, it's kind of like an odd thing to say, don't you think? Talking about fathers and sons and it goes, if if you're evil. And I'm like, why would you do that? Here's what God told me. He said, because not everybody has a good feeling or a good understanding or a good experience with their earthly dads. There are some earthly dads that have ruined it for people's relationship with, with God. By the way, dads, did you know that, that you are the biggest reflection of how your kids see God? You are. Not even mom. You are. Because he's our heavenly father. And so how, what they see in you, oftentimes they will project onto their relationship with God and carry that all the way into adulthood. And Jesus knew that there were situations where people did not have good experiences with their earthly fathers. And he says, if you then being evil, okay, he says, now listen, there's this little story about a judge and a judge was getting ready to sentence this, this young man to prison. And the judge knew the father. And in order to awaken his conscience, he said to the young man, he said, he said, when you think of your dad right now, what do you think about? And he was thinking that the young man was going to say, oh, I can't believe how I've disappointed my dad. And my dad has always done so, good, so much good for me and all that. But the young man said this. He said, judge, you know him as a great attorney who wrote volumes of books. But I remember every time that I, I went to him for companionship, he'd say, go away, boy. I'm not done writing my book. Every time I needed advice, he'd say, you know, I'm too busy right now. He said, you, you remember him as a great lawyer, and I remember him as a lost friend. And, and the judge muttered to himself, finished the book, but lost the boy. And here's the problem. Here's the problem, and here's what Jesus is getting at. And here's why our understanding of God can often be so warped, because we project onto God through our earthly relationships and especially those earthly relationships that are closest to us, like a relationship with a father, we somehow project that onto God and say, well, if my earthly dad was like that, then my heavenly father must be like that. And here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is much better. Our heavenly father is much better than all your evil dads. God doesn't have an answering machine picking up his calls. When you reach out to him, press one for a request. Press two for thanksgivings, press three for complaints. For all of the inquiries, press four. When you call God or when you pray, you don't hear all of the angels are helping other people right now. Please stay on the line. Your call will be answered in the order that it was received. If you'd like to speak with Gabriel, press one. If you want Michael, press two. If you want another angel, press three. If you'd like King David to sing you a psalm, then press six. Our computer shows that you've called more than once today. Please hang up and call again tomorrow. Our office is closed for the weekend. Please call again on Monday. You don't hear that with God. Jesus is trying to tell us something. He's trying to let us know God is not like your evil earthly fathers. And then he says this, and he's also better than even the best dads. This is what he's trying to teach us. There there are some people whose experience with their dads is not good. There are other people whose experience with their dad is phenomenal. 
They know their dad to be a, a sacrificing dad, a, a dad that loves them, is there for them, will do anything for them, will, anything in his power, a dad that that's always don't know where his family is. Life revolves around his family. The dad that, that when they ask, what do you want for Christmas? He really doesn't want anything. What he wants is he wants to see the smile on the family's face. He, he, he wants to see the joy. That, that's his gift. It's, it's their joy. Jesus is saying, even those dads, Jesus is saying, our heavenly father, he's better than that. What he's telling us is this is not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. And then he closed it out, and here's the huge point. Here's the, here's the thing that I really want you to get. He closes it out by challenging our paradigm of is this big, giant, benevolent, transcendent being just God? Or is he your father? See, we can look at God in one of two ways. We can look at God strictly as God. And if all he is is God, there's this kind of religious relationship that we have with him. Where kind of he's just kind of out there kind of watching over. And if he feels like it, he'll do it. If he doesn't feel like it, he won't. And he'll get us and he'll whip us and he'll, he'll do all these kind of things. And Jesus is challenging this paradigm to say, to, for us to understand that even though he might be God to some people, who he really is is father to us. Jesus wants us to flip the paradigm to not he's God, but our father happens to be God. There's a big difference between the two. Watch this. I heard this little story about, about a Roman emperor. And he just had this great victory. And in times, early ancient times in Rome, whenever you'd have a great victory, the, the emperor or the victor would parade through the streets. And they would have this big fanfare and all the army and the spoil and, and all of the, the captors would be in this trail and they'd parade, parade, parade them through the streets. And, and I heard the story about this one time this Roman emperor did that and, and the streets were aligned with the people waiting to cheer him on because he had won this great victory and, and the Roman soldiers and legionary were, were lining the streets to make sure that nobody charged the emperor's chariot as he was taking his victory march or parade around the city. And, and a short while, a short way down the road, there was this deus and on the deus would be the empress and the empress's family. And, and, and the younger son was there, a little boy, and, and when he saw his dad coming down, he, without his mom knowing, he slipped out, down from the dais and made his way through the crowd and he tried to slip under one of the soldier's legs and to go see his dad and the soldier saw him but didn't know who it was and scooped him up and held him and said, boy, you can't just run out there. Don't you know who that is? That's your emperor. And the boy laughed. He said, he might be your emperor, but he's my daddy. You, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? He, he might be your God, but he's my daddy. He might be your God, but he's my father. My father just happens to be God. And when you realize that your father is God, something happens. Something changes in the way that you approach, in the way that you relate, and the way that you talk to and what you expect from him. I, I read an excerpt from Tim Keller's book. Sorry, it wasn't a book. It was an interview. Tim Keller's a pastor who pastors in New York City, pastors a great church called Redeemer Church. And uh, he was asked about the importance of seeing God as Father. And he said, a fruitful prayer life requires a foundational conviction that God is my Father, that He is totally for me without hesitation on His part, that He is holy for my good, 
He said it has to be foundational or Jesus wouldn't have started the Lord's prayer with the words, our Father. Then he said this. Some Bible scholar may find me an exception to what I'm about to say here, but I don't think Jesus ever addressed God without calling him Father. And and so it must be foundational. I would say it's foundational because the word Father, that you are my Father, when you have that word, you essentially have the gospel in miniature. He said, if God is my boss, he, if he is my employer, then even though he might be a very good boss or a very good employer, nevertheless, in the end, he is not unconditionally committed to me. If I act up, he may give me a break or two, but eventually my boss will say, I'm sorry, you're terminated. And so if I forget that God is my father, I may come to him in prayer, basically in a mercenary way, basically saying, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and now you owe me this, 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 and this. First, that destroys our ability to adore God, but secondly, it makes prayer a way of manipulating God. He said, I have three sons, and I know growing up that they were always at different places. If one of them was acting up, if one of them was actually being a little bit more disobedient, a little bit more rebellious, or something like that as a father, if anything, my heart went out to them more. I actually got more involved with him because I am not his boss, I'm his father. And so when I know that when I call God Father and I'm coming in Jesus' name and I'm coming because of God's grace and because Jesus died for me, I know that God is unconditionally committed to me. And then he said this, so to call God Father enhances everything you do in prayer. If you don't know that God is your Father, it flattens and reduces and thins out every kind of prayer. Wow! Amazing! What's he saying? He said he may be your God, but he's my Father. You may see him only as your boss. You may see him only as your employer. But I see him as my father who happens to be God. And when I understand that my father happens to be God, suddenly stuff begins to change because I realize that there's nothing too difficult for my dad. My father happens to be all-knowing. My father happens to be somebody who nothing is too difficult for. My father spoke the word and the worlds came into existence. My father flexes his muscles in the sea stop and sickness flees when I understand that he's my father things change he's saying Jesus is saying you gotta you got flip your paradigm and they, these paradigms are not just head paradigms they're, they're not just things that that you kind of know because you can intellectually see it they got to get in your heart. they got to get on the inside of you. How come some people have a bad opinion of their earthly fathers? Relationship. No kid starts out hating his earthly dad. No kid starts out like that. But o- over the years, they see stuff and they see that they're not important. First on the list. Their dads don't do stuff that other dads do. And so this resentment builds up because of relationship. How do you get it in your heart that your heavenly father is good? It's called relationship. I can't teach you into a revelation that God is good. I can't do it. I wish I could. I wish I could just give you a few scriptures. You're like, yeah, yeah, God is good. Can't do it. 
What has to happen is you need to establish that through relationship. Now, Tim Keller said this. Some Bible scholar may find an exception to what I'm about to say here, but I don't think that Jesus ever addressed God without calling him Father. I'm that Bible scholar to take exception to what Tim Keller said because it's not true. There is one time and only one time in all the scripture that Jesus addressed God without calling him Father. And it was in our opening text, Matthew chapter 27, verse number 16. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time Jesus addressed God and didn't call him Father. Why? Because at this moment in time, Jesus hung on the cross and took upon him the sin of the world, my sin and yours. Jesus, because he became sin, became separated from the Father for the first and only time in his entire existence. He had been with God from eternity past and will remain with God for eternity forever. But there was one moment in time in which Jesus' relationship with God was severed, and that's when he became sin on the cross. And therefore, because he had no relationship God was no longer his father. Was his God. And when he was his God, he was the one pouring out judgment. And when he was his God, he was the one that was turning his back on him. See, when he was God, he was boss. When he was God, he was employer. When he was God, he's this big, you know, the ordinary supernatural being who's uninterested. But when he's father, things change. If he's simply God, we'll only fear him. If he's simply God, we won't know what to expect of him. If he's simply God, we won't be sure we can talk to him. If he's simply God, we won't know he's got time for us. If he's simply God, we'll think we're bothering him and that we have to pester him and that we're unimportant to him. But when he's my father who happens to be God, then we run to him. We run to him through the crowds and through the trials and through the ups and through the downs and through the confusion and through the chaos and through the good times and through the bad times. When he's our father, Father, we understand that we can trust his heart even when we can't trace his hand. When he's our father, we know he knows best. He's got our best interests at heart. He would never allow anything that would ultimately destroy our relationship with him. There's a trust that happens. When we know he's father, I'm going to preach a little bit more about this next week but I'll give you a little foretaste how many's ever um, told their kids not to do something and their kids did it anyway how many's ever been told by your parents not to do something and you did it anyway how many realizes that your parents were right and you were wrong Amazing, huh? It's called growing up. It's called maturity. It's called realizing that your parents had your best interest at heart when they said no. Here's what happens when God's your father. You're not going to always understand everything. You know, people come to me all the time, Pastor, can you explain this? Sometimes I can't. Wish I could. Wish I had all the answers. 
But here's what happens when God is your father. When he's your father, you, even though you might hurt, even though you, you might feel bad, something on the inside goes, I can trust him. Because he's my father. He's got my best interests at heart. See, when you have a really good relationship with your kids and you say no, even though they may not like it, deep down on the inside they might be going, ah, Father knows best. That's a really good kid, isn't it? Some of you are like, my kid will never do that. Trust me, in time most kids, when you're good to them, when you're the father that you should be, the mother that you should be, eventually that's what happens. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But God's message to you today is simply this. He may be your God, but he's my father. Would you stand to your feet?